This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're finishing up chapter 23. This portion of the Gospel is one long lecture to the religious leaders of Jesus' time. They think they are righteous and destined for heaven, but Jesus clarifies and mourns over their blindness and hypocrisy. They aren't leading anyone to heaven. In fact, they're leading their followers to hell. As we reach the end of his lament, Jesus reminds us of the crucial truths surrounding God's redemption plan. They are not easy truths at all, but they are the realities that lead to hope and eternal life. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Find your places in Matthew 23, verses 34 through 39. We're going to conclude this chapter here in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. And this is in preparation for the final and last sermon on this particular gospel here that, that Jesus gave called the Olivet Discourse, which we will start next week. But in preparation for that, he finalized his woes to the scribes and the Pharisees using these words. Therefore, behold... I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation." Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, church, Scripture lets us know here that we've signed up for a dangerous mission. When you became a Christian, when you became a believer in Christ, you signed up for a dangerous mission. So Scripture tells us these hard truths here. Yes, there are some soft truths that are some soothing truths in Scripture, but these are hard truths in the fact that we are at war in the spiritual realm. Not against each other. The Bible is clear about that, but we war against the powers of the air and so forth. So what I want to do today is go over this passage and identify crucial realities of God's redemptive plan. So the first reality is in verse 34 here. We're going to call it persecution. Now this verse here, verse 34, marks Israel's official but temporary rejection of the Messiah. You remember, they have rejected Christ. They have said, no, you are not our Messiah. Therefore, we're going to crucify you. So this verse here marks their final rejection, and uh, to signal this national tragedy, Jesus predicted that the scribes and the Pharisees would persecute future messengers of the gospel. Now, the persecution of Christians started immediately after the day of Pentecost, not too many days from this scene here. According to Luke, for example, the priests in the temple guard arrested Peter and John, and by chapter 7 of the book of Acts, the Jews killed Stephen, the first martyr of the church age. And then Saul, a couple of chapters later, a Pharisee, 
Ben, also known as the Apostle Paul after his conversion here, participated in the murder of Stephen. But he himself was persecuted and arrested. In fact, he wrote a few epistles from prison. And then by chapter 12 of the book of Acts, Herod arrested some Christians and put James to death. That's the reality of, of believers. In different times of history, persecution is more intense, other times less intense, but persecution continued. Now, official state-sponsored persecution has never reached our shores yet in the United States. We thank God we don't have to fear for our lives here, but Christians everywhere should expect affliction. If you're a believer in Christ, affliction is your companion. We know that because of what Peter instructed his readers when he wrote 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised, he says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. You see, when you hear a message of life improvement, when you hear a preacher promise you your better life now, everything, you're the best thing since uh, sliced bread on this world, and then when you encounter persecution, you're surprised. But Peter says, do not be surprised because persecution and affliction comes upon you for your testing. God uses those as a tool to mold our character so that we can be more like him. And he tests our faith. Now, suppress the reality of persecution and you might have a huge following. False teachers have caught on to this strategy, but you can't do that and claim faithfulness to Christ at the same time because that is false advertising. But here's a second crucial reality of God's redemptive plan here. Another uncomfortable subject, and that's called judgment. The second one here in our list, verses 35 through 36. Now, he promised to send messengers to Israel here in, the, in his last words to, to the nation here. But check this out, church. Not for the purpose of getting them to repent, because that did not happen when he sent the disciples, according to Matthew 10. You remember, that's the first missionary discourse of Jesus when he told the disciples, go to the house of Israel. Do not go by the way of the Gentiles. Go to Israel and tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they've had plenty of opportunities to repent and to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. But now Jesus is telling the, the scribes and the Pharisees, I'm going to send you messengers so that the guilt of your predecessors will fall upon you. So the purpose is not for them to repent, although some of them will. But these, the reason he's saying that is because of the cup of guilt illustration that he used in the last woe here. He says, fill up, fill up the cup of your guilt. And they would do that by the time they crucified Jesus Christ. But he clarified that these murders would then top off their cup of guilt. And as a result, God would judge them collectively for shedding the blood of all the righteous, he says, from Abel to Zechariah, literally from A to Z. But Jesus had explained the reason in verse 31 here. When he says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. And then in verse 31, uh, you testify against yourselves that you are son of those who murdered the prophets. So these guys, again, remember, belong to the lineage, spiritual lineage of the people who murdered prophets and persecuted the righteous. And then Jesus says, I'm sending you messengers in order to serve as evidence, more evidence against you on the day of judgment. Why? Because you have already determined in your heart to reject the Son of God, to reject Christ. The only course of action then, when you fill up that cup, the only course of action is judgment. Now, God's love endures forever. We know that. His patience does not. His forbearance has a limit. And these guys have reached that limit here. And therefore, because of that, they said, the only course of action is for you to endure judgment, and I'm sending you messengers. 
You will hear the message and your heart is going to be even harder because of that. Now, a few days from this scene here, the crowds of first century Israel, they're confirmed this divine judgment upon themselves. You know the story, Pontius Pilate wanted to free Jesus. He was trying to do that, but the crowds kept demanding, crucify him, crucify him. Here's what happened next, according to Matthew 27, verses 24 through 25. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. In other words, you crucify him. I am innocent. But the text continues here, and the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Ouch. These people are affirming their own judgment. They're affirming the fact that, yes, we have rejected Jesus Christ, crucify him, away with him. He is not our Messiah. We want nothing to do with him. His blood be upon us. This is prophecy being fulfilled because Jesus said to them, I'm going to send you messengers and you're still going to reject me. And as a result is you're going to encounter judgment. Now, thankfully for us, God will not condemn or judge truly converted, born-again believers. Why? Because we are in Christ, the Bible says, Romans 8, verse 1. We have passed out of death into life, 1 John 3, verse 14, and nothing will separate us from his love, Romans 8, verses 37 through 39. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and therefore no separation. So no condemnation, no separation from Jesus Christ. So he will never tell us your house is being desolate because he will never separate us from himself. Those of us who have responded to the message have not rejected the Son of God and have embraced Jesus Christ as our Savior. And because we enjoy such a distinct position and because we want to obey him, we must warn others about the risk of divine judgment. Church, there's nothing more compassionate than to tell people you do not want to be a part of that future judgment. You don't want to fall in the hands of the living God because the book of Hebrews says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So therefore, God is so loving and so compassionate and so kind that he has provided a way for you to avoid receiving that judgment if you only come to faith in Christ. We cannot proclaim the gospel faithfully if we eliminate this element from the message. Fake gospels produce false believers who gather in counterfeit churches. I can't think of anything more loving and compassionate than to show sinners the holiness of God who demands repentance and offers eternal life to whosoever will, whosoever will come to him. So, so far we looked at two crucial realities of God's redemptive plan here, persecution and judgment. The third one we're going to call unbelief. Verse 37, because again, that's what Jesus is addressing here in verse 37 when he says here an expression of lament. This is known as the lament over Jerusalem when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And remember, he is sending them to Jerusalem, but now he is referring to the nation using the city Jerusalem. This is a figure of speech that we are very familiar with because we use it all the time. When we want to refer to the nation, for example, we refer to the capital of that nation. We say, well, Washington, D.C. decided this or that. So that's sort of the same idea here. He is addressing the nation of Israel by speaking directly a word of lament here to Jerusalem. And these are his last public words to Israel. It's, it's a word of lament. He is lamenting the fact that they will receive judgment. 
He is lamenting the fact that because of their rejection, Jesus then will let, leave their house desolate. We'll get to that in a moment here and understand what that means. He's not bitter over a wounded ego. That's not the point. His grief denounces the murderous and rebellious attitude of God's beloved people. These are people who are beloved by God. These are the people to whom belong the covenant, Paul says, and all the promises and all the, the fathers, the, the patriarchs. But the law of Moses, you may remember, prescribed capital punishment by stoning for idolatry and sorcery, for example. And yet the scribes and the Pharisees here and their spiritual ancestors, themselves guilty of idolatry, executed the innocent prophets of the true God. That's that one of the reasons Jesus is lamenting here. You kill those who are sent to you to speak to you about God. You kill them and you are guilty of that. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. Because these guys have criminalized the true prophets of Yahweh and executed them and killed them. Now, the criminalization of true ministry is nothing new. We see that today. It happens all around the world. The Jews of the first century failed to acknowledge Jesus, even though he walked and interacted with them. Should we expect anything different from people today? Should we expect different responses in a time when people want to marginalize the word of God? Sinners' unwillingness to come to Christ will continue. We expect that. People will continue to reject the gospel. People will continue to reject you because you preach the gospel and persecute you. Again, persecution here in the United States is so mild compared to other places around the world. But that kind of rejection will continue even during the tribulation of the last days. And we know that because there is a parable that Jesus spoke in Matthew 13, the parable of the soils. You remember that. He says... During the mystery phase of the kingdom, he's referring to the church age when Jews and Gentiles will be together in the body of Christ. During that time, the gospel, and he, he refers to the gospel as the seed here. We will broadcast that seed, and some of that seed is going to fall on the different types of soils. And one, only one of those soils produce fruit. So it is overly optimistic for us, church, to expect massive conversions. Now, they do happen from time to time. And when they do happen, we should celebrate them as rare occasions and classify them as small awakenings. But we should expect overall and widespread rejection of the gospel. Not everybody, in fact, most people who hear the message, if you're preaching the message faithfully, will decline. They will reject. Now, if you water down that message, again, those of you who preach and teach, you know this. Our goal is to gather people. We don't like to scatter people. We are peacemakers by calling, not troublemakers. So the temptation is to water down the message. The temptation is to modify the gospel to make it a little more acceptable for people. That is a mistake. Our job is not to make the gospel acceptable, but to make it available. And then let God take care of, of who comes to his church, who decides and whatnot. The reality is that when you preach the gospel faithfully, many will not come to Jesus Christ. It's a tough sell. It's a tough sell to tell people, you know what? The gospel is you must pick up your cross and follow Christ. Salvation is free. It's a free gift of God. But following him closely will cost you everything. You're not, you must pick up your cross and follow him. And what about when Jesus says, those who love mother and father more than me are not worthy of me? Church, that's a tough sell. It has to take a work of the Holy Spirit to convince people to embrace the gospel. I, I was having a conversation recently with a friend of mine, and he said, you, you're not going to convert me. I said, friend, 
first of all, it is not my job to convert you, and that's an impossibility. I can never convert you. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. All I can do is offer you the truth. You can choose to believe it or not. And we were having that conversation because he gave me permission to share the gospel with him. In fact, he initiated the conversation. The truth is when you tell people and when you echo the words of Christ, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, most people will tune you out. And some may even call for your head on a platter. But let me talk to you about the fourth crucial reality of God's redemptive plan here according to what we heard from Christ. We're going to call this one condemnation, verse 38 condemnation because he says your house is being left to you desolate that's a word of condemnation church that's his sentence to unbelieving israel here at this point first century israel and he uses the concept of desolation meaning the fact that he's going to abandon them temporarily he's going to walk away from them temporarily and he is talking about the destruction of the temple let me show you why if you just go down a few verses in chapter 24 he says jesus came out from the temple So he says, your house is being left desolate. And now Jesus demonstrates that by walking out of the temple saying, because you have rejected me, I am walking out. And then he continues in verse 1 here of chapter 24. The disciples came to him and pointed to the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. He's referring to the destruction of that place. The destruction of that temple. And if you know anything about history, you will conclude and verify that this took place in 70 AD. The destruction of the temple here. But he also wants to announce publicly here and officially his temporary departure from the city. He says, I am going away. Because the Jews of that time failed to welcome the owner of the house. Then the owner of the house will abandon them temporarily. They rejected Christ. They said, okay, I'm leaving. The Bible says that he came to his own in the Gospel of John and the prologue of that Gospel, but his own received him not. But to those who received him, he gave the power to become children of God, not by flesh and blood, but by adoption, by conversion. So he will abandon them temporarily to their sin. See, he's saying, you want your sin of unbelief? You want your sin of idolatry? You want your sin of self-centeredness and self-righteousness? You want the religion of appearances, the religion of the facade, the religion that doesn't touch the heart, but the religion that focuses on behavior rather than heart transformation? Okay, your house is being left to you desolate. I am leaving temporarily because he says, you will not see me until. We'll get to that in a moment here. But church... I argue that the most severe type of condemnation and sentencing is not fire and brimstone, but it's when Jesus walks away, when Jesus leaves a place, when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to leave you to wallow in your sin. You can have your sin. Paul describes this type of condemnation when he writes in Romans 1, verses 18 through 24, the wrath of God is revealed, present tense. He says the wrath of God, not will be revealed, not was revealed, but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them over in their lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 
Church, that is judgment. That is sentence here against sin. And I, again, I argue that this is worse than fire and brimstone, which will happen in the tribulation of the end times. We talked all about this when we went through the book of Revelation. But this is the most severe type of judgment. When God says, I am leaving you. You want your sin? Here, have your sin. Wallow in your own impurity. And that leads me to the very last point of our crucial elements here of um, God's redemptive plan. And this one is bathed in hope. I'm going to call this one revival because that is what Jesus is talking about here. You will not see me until there is a revival. There will be a revival and Israel will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that has significant implications for us. Jesus assured his listeners that God's Faithfulness to Israel never changes. I hope you see that attribute of God here, the immutability of God, the fact that God is unchanging. Now, and that's very comforting for us because God is never going to evolve, which means God has always had from eternity past and to, into eternity future the attribute of perfection. He doesn't develop. He doesn't learn anything. You and I do. In fact, the Bible encourages us and commends us to change. We must change. But God doesn't change. Therefore, his promises never change. He'll never go back on his promises. In fact, Paul says to Timothy when he's encouraging that young pastor in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, church, every time you and I mess up in our Christian life, and we do it often, we take great comfort in knowing that he remains faithful, even when we remain faithless. Think about this for a moment. If you could lose your salvation, you would have already lost it. You don't deserve to be saved in the first place. You don't deserve to be kept saved. And same is true for every believer. Now, what we're talking about here, this national revival that's going to happen in the future, is God made a promise to Abraham. You will remember that in Genesis 12, the patriarch's descendants, through the line of Isaac and Jacob, would inherit the promised land. And because they rebelled against God... The previous generations were taken captive and dispersed around the world. But Jesus promised to return for the fulfillment of every promise to Israel. So he's promising, I'm going to come back and personally see to it that every promise that God made to the nation is fulfilled. During the tribulation of the end times, descendants of Jacob will come to faith in Christ by the thousands. 144,000 of them will serve as missionaries during that time. They will be the evangelists of the tribulation of the end times, and they will win millions upon millions of people to Christ, according to Revelation 7 and also in Revelation 14. They will welcome Jesus' return, and they will be gathered in the land that God promised to them finally. And then the times of the Gentiles will be over. Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish his millennial kingdom. He will reign personally from Jerusalem. That's called the millennium. Here are some details of this promise to us believers. If you are a believer in Christ, you have an unconditional promise that God made to you. And let me read that promise to you that Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If you are in Christ, my friends, you will never be outside of Christ. He will come and he will take you with him, whether that happens on the day of the rapture or if that happens when you die and you are promoted to glory. His promise to you is unconditional. And I hope that that promise will kindle in your heart 
a revival, an infusion of joy and gratitude. Think about this. He longs to have eternal fellowship with you. He made that promise and he sent his son here to die on a cross to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life to those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he'll never go back on that promise. Now, God has not called all of you to be pastors for sure, but he summons all of us here to pick up our cross and follow him. And by the way, picking up your cross doesn't mean tolerating a noisy neighbor. Picking up your cross doesn't mean enduring weird in-laws. Picking up your cross means you are dying to self and living for Christ. The Christian journey is bumpy. The Christian journey is treacherous. You will find affliction. In fact, affliction will find you because we follow the men of sorrows, the Bible says. But, oh, thanks be to God, Paul says, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. That is the life of a Christian, a faithful Christian. So... No false advertisements here. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you will die to the world. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. But, he continues, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In church, nothing is more honorable, nothing is more noble than to represent faithfully your Savior. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth With Grace.